I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. So my guest this month is Alex Lazaro, and he spent his career uh, working at the intersection of investments, innovation, economic development in both the private and public sectors. Uh, he's also an author. He wrote a book out, Innovate, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to, to Detroit Are Rewriting the Rules of Silicon Valley. Um, he's a professor, Kaufman Fellow. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, Alex is just a, he is a, um, a thought leader in this space. Uh, and when I say this space, his space is actually rather broad from tech to investments to impact. Um, he's, he's done a lot of different things in his career from the Omidyar Network uh, to now his work with Cathay uh, Investments. Um, so, but before we, you know, jump into kind of what you're doing and seeing in, in the broader landscape of the global economy, um, I'd love to know, you know, you grew up on the prairies of Canada. So what was it like and, and how did you find yourself, you know, doing the work that you're doing, um, you know, pretty impressive degrees, but something kind of helped move you in that direction? What was that like and, and what was that for you? Uh, so first of all, thank you so much for having me and, and really excited for the conversation. Um, I've always been really interested, like you said, this this intersection of innovation and economic development and this tool of finance came later. When I was in undergrad, I thought I was going to do a PhD in developmental economics. And I, I grew up in a small town in the middle of, middle of the country. And um, I had this opportunity to go work on the Canadian version of Wall Street, uh, Bay Street, um, doing M&A investment banking. And while I was not in love with selling Canadian insurance companies, I was in love with the tool of finance. I, I found it a powerful tool. And this was, by the way, at the time when Mohamed Yunus had just won the Nobel Peace Prize, impact investing was beginning. Um, and so I decided instead of going to academia, I would uh, go do my MBA. And I came out of that with this thesis of uh, investing for good. Uh, I realized I had no discernible skills. And, uh, and, and so before, before going to an investment firm, I, I, I ended up, you know, I, a lot of the things I, I care a lot about are in highly regulated industries like financial services or healthcare, et cetera, and want to understand how that world worked. And so I ended up working at the Bank of Canada for a bit and then later at uh, McKinsey doing consulting, um, mostly in emerging markets, mostly all over the world. And, and kind of w after that for a while, um, I had the opportunity to join Omidyar Network in California. Um, I was the first hire on a new financial inclusion fund, and um, that was about a decade ago. And 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 fell in love with 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 this early stage venture investing, but really at the intersection of startups that are going to scale and startups that have impact really built into the core of the DNA and the operations. Um, and so that's what I do uh, today, and was doing there. That's cool. And so, in, even growing up before you know Bay Street, like, was there anything? How did you, I mean, what kind of lit the fire for you around innovation and, and technology or just innovation in general? Like, what, was there a teacher? Was there, was there a family member? Was there, you know, was entrepreneurship just part of your upbringing or like, what was that like for you? Um, honestly, I'm not sure there was one moment that got the fire going. Um, I think it was a progression. I think that when I was in undergrad, I was interested in the tools that could drive economic development and, and, and like I was, the, the, you know, I was in uh, university during some of the growth in early tech and things like that. And so I was seeing that as an outsider, right? Not living in there. Um, and then progressively my career got closer and closer um, until, you know, metaphorically and physically I moved to Silicon Valley. And I think that here, like the lens on, on the world 
um, that we have is, 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 is of tech. But I lived in D.C. before and there the lens of the world was public policy in Brussels before that. Um, but I think I came into the world of tech with that being the tool. But I think by, by the nature of the fact that I've, I've worked, lived and worked in a couple of these different contexts, um, honestly, I, um, uh, I, I, I'm a venture capitalist. I'm perennially optimistic. And yet I, I, I think I bring some skepticism too of, look, tech is not a panacea. And some of the biggest problems in the world will be solved with innovation in concert with regulation and public policy and government funding and the nonprofit sector and a lot of these things coming together. Um, and, and, and Bryce, a lot of things that you're thinking very deeply about and, and using various forms of capital. And, and I think I, I think I've come to that by having having done a portfolio of activities in my career and then choosing the lens where I'm going to spend most of my time uh, around tech and investing. And I think, and I love your language, investing for good. You know, like coming out of your your, your schooling and then going to a midiar. But it's it's fascinating. You know, you're a venture capitalist. You know, you work at a massive global firm, um, but you also have this other this other thread of impact investing. I'm curious from your vantage point, like. What do you think about the world of impact investing? Well, Ross Baird and I, mutual friend, talk about this yeah. all the time. Like, what is the inevitable future reality of this? Are we creating an altogether different industry, or is there a goal with this? Like, what is impact investing? Investing for good is is good. It's good language, but what does that look like from your vantage point? You know, it, it's funny, right? Because I, I worked at ON for a while doing impact investing, and now I work at a traditional venture fund uh, and growth fund uh, where we're not quote unquote, an impact investor. I consider myself a closet impact investor. Every investment I've done, I would have been delighted to have done at, uh, at ON. And it just happens that I believe that some of the biggest problems in the world are also some of the biggest massive markets. And if you can solve it, you can do something interesting. So I'll caveat it with that, that I, I, I've been an impact investor and a closet impact investor. Um, I, uh, I have mixed feelings towards the word impact investing, yeah. where it used to be um, this kind of other, there was investing and then there was quote impact investing. And I think that in some ways it's similar to FinTech where there was technology and then there's this other thing called financial services technology. And today, um, I think the lens is much broader, right? Where impact investing, just like FinTech, FinTech is, is mainstream. It's every, every, everyone's looking at it. Impact investing today is actually a lens, an approach that you can do public market investing with. You can do uh, private market investing. You can do real estate investing. You can think about these multiple stakeholders. And so I actually think we need, I, I, personally, I, I personally think we need better language yeah. um, around what we're doing um, because there's a, lot, there's a lot more breadth and depth to this than when the sector started you know, a little bit over a decade ago. Um, yeah, and I have to believe I, some of that's due to like, you know, just the growths and in how do we measure this? How do we define it? You know, and, and I think consumer education, a more aware consumer that's actually forcing some of this and, and more transparency. Uh, so it, it probably happened faster than some might have thought. But I, I definitely think so, some work on on defining terms would be would be helpful because because I do think, you know, where I sit in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, impact investing is a four-letter word, you know, because if you're an investor, it's perceived as a concessionary investment only. Like you're only ever going to, like you've got to concede. You can't have both. You can't have impact and good returns. And I love to have you, you know, talk about like all the work you're doing now at a venture fund, a traditional venture fund that's global, the things that you're doing that you would have also done it at ON. You know, like yeah. that's that's helpful to hear because you guys aren't, you're not making concessionary investments at Cathay, you're, you're doing, 
you're doing real venture investing. Um, yeah. and so I think that's the thing that I, that's the thing that I'm always bucking against in mid America specifically in some of these flyover States is, is this, um, this world that, uh, that language really, really matters. And when somebody hears that word for the first time, who are they hearing it from? And so here people hear impact investing mostly from the nonprofit sector, uh, foundations that may be doing program related investing. And then that becomes what defines that term for them. So, yeah, well, I'll give you three examples in America, two of yeah, which, that'd be great. two of which not from California. Um, but before I do, um, the way I think about kind of the lens on which I think about impact uh, in my book, I, I talk about this concept called MMAs, multi-mission athletes. Mm -hmm. And I use I use this word, right, of MMA, thinking of mixed martial arts, right? But it's really using multiple skills towards the same objective. But the businesses I love are the ones where the operational outcomes of the business and the financial incentives of the business are directly aligned with scaling impact. Yeah. And I think that when that happens and when you can build a business that can scale really well, but where those incentives are very aligned – you can actually have an incredibly successful and incredibly impactful business. Um, so let me give you three examples uh, of companies I've been delighted to be to, to have had the opportunity to invest in. Um, the first is Chime. It's actually how I got to know Cathay. I had invested in Chime when I was at Omidyar Network. Cathay had led the B. Um, Chime Bank is a leading digital bank, uh, fintech company in the U.S. Um, they essentially make money when customers make money. They make money uh, when you swipe uh, your debit card, when you use the bank account they get paid on bank interchange. Um, they have no overdraft fees, very transparent pricing, um, digital top app to be able to, to, to use it, et cetera. Um, but where, where the impact is really tied to uh, the outcome and very, very targeted to a customer segment uh, that was underserved hmm. um, and, and, and really the, the, the mass market in the US. So that, that's one. Um, another company is Sidecar Health, uh, which, um, uh, is uh, a health insurance company. And they have a different twist on how health insurance works. They say, we have a specific benefit um, that we offer, X dollars for Y thing. And as a patient, you then have agency and control over the health you want if you go anywhere you want. And by the way, if you choose to get care at somewhere that's less expensive, uh, you get paid the difference. And if you choose to get care somewhere more expensive, you can pay a little bit more, and, but you have choice. And they give you the tools to make those choices. Uh, they give you an app and you can see the cost of all the drugs in the neighborhood in the, in the area and a card where you swipe and you pay. And in real time, it, it helps solve some of the so, solve some of the friction there. Um, and the result, by the way, is that the cost is much, much, much cheaper than all the other health plans you can get, get insurance from. And so, uh, they work when people, uh, keep renewing them and keep using them and also, uh, do this behavioral work, uh, around yeah. And then the last one I'll mention, which is an Austin, Texas-based company, is called Zen Business. And they're a single pane of glass for small businesses. Uh, they help form your LLC, but because they know where you live, what you do, who you are, with a couple clicks, they can open up a bank account and send your first invoice or help you buy a domain name. And they've done a thousand doctor websites. They can help you do a really, really good one for that and everything else. Um, and they succeed when you use them over yeah. and over for a lot of, a lot of service when they really provide value. And, and, uh, and by the way, they help... They've, they've helped form so many new small businesses in, in, in the U.S. And so those are examples of businesses where I think the operational success of that business is very tied to the impact um, and it's targeting a customer segment 
um, that I think you and I care care a lot about. Yeah. And, and anyway, so that, that's well, and, I, the, and the other thing I love is uh, you know because like Steve Case would say, you know, for it to be impact, it's got to be measurable and 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 actually measured, right? That's reported and transparent. But for the success of those businesses, because it's so tied to their business model, like they're they're going to measure that data. You know, Sidecar Health, they're going to measure the number of patients served and the amount of money saved by those patients um, because that's part of their business model. And so therefore, it's it's going to be measured. So there's this there's this value that it's so tied to who they are as a company. Uh, and I love I love what you did there, which was bring in examples, because I think sometimes we we live in this this theoretical, like, wouldn't it be awesome if, but you brought it to like three concrete examples of companies across the country in different industries that are doing exactly what we're talking about, building a business to serve people and and to do it while also getting return for investors. I mean, I love that. That's great. But by the way, um, uh, and uh, thank you. And, and, but by the way, I I will say, um, I'm also lucky. In the sense that, <laughs> uh, no, no, but it's impact lens. Like I'm lucky that I'm a fintech investor. Like I do mm-hmm. mostly financial services and health. Um, but in financial services, right, there's a lot of academic research that says you give people better ways to save, more affordable ways to pay, um, lower cost credit, access to banking, right? There's a lot of academic rigorous research that says you do that. Yeah. Therefore, you have these social and economic benefits. Um, and therefore, um, we can measure, well, how many people get banked and What's the effect on credit? And those are very operationally tied things. It's it, it, harder in other sectors. Um, for in the sure. sense that, you know, ed tech, for instance, uh, you might say, hey, I'm going to build a school and get kids in, kids in school. That's not impact. Impact is kids learn and school is the means by which you do it. Uh, and so there's still a gap of like whether or not the schooling method or, you know, if you're doing an innovation with digital or whatever, whatever it is. Um, it can be harder in other sectors, um, I think. Yeah. So I, I, I caveat my comment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. And, and that's a really good point too because like I think oftentimes there's two two sides of that. One, the entrepreneur making sure, okay, are we – what are the outcomes you know, versus the outputs? Right. It's not kids getting education, but are they learning? And so then really drilling into like what that means and how you might measure that. Um, there is a cost there, right? A cost of the entrepreneur to do that. And so who bears the burden of that cost? And so I think even as an impact investor, really, really trying to understand what is that burden we're placing on these entrepreneurs that are already strapped for time and cash. And so being sensitive to all of this additional reporting requirements because we're impact investors, quote unquote. So I, I, I will say one thing, you know, EdTech is not my expertise, so I'll, I'll, I'll put that one aside, but I will say um, this world of, innovation and, and giving space to do this for entrepreneurs is something where as a community and ecosystem builders, and by the way, the government regulators, um, I think yeah. there's room to play. And, and I'll give one example, which is regulatory sandboxes, which is saying, hey, I've got this new idea in fin- of a product or whatever. Um, it's totally different than anything we've seen before. Um, one of the things that you know could be a natural instinct is, ah, that doesn't fit in a box. Let's not do it from a regulatory standpoint. Uh, but a bunch of countries around the world, like um, in the UK or in Singapore and elsewhere, have created these sandboxes to say, hey, within this box of X customers and these parameters on the product, you can do a bunch of stuff. And when you get to a certain size, we will revisit together on what, what has happened. I think figuring out ways to sandbox innovation to make it cheaper uh, mm-hmm. to try and, and more affordable, I think can also catalyze innovation in, in the impact space. So I, I, I think those are areas where we're, we're still in the first or second inning on what's going to happen. I think we're going to see more. Yeah. And I think, um, kind of it segues into, uh, I just read a, 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 post from you in the, in Forbes about money 2020 and just kind of how financial inclusion has 
come mainstream. Um, and so, you know, because you've been in it for the last decade plus, uh, financial inclusion. So talk to me, like, what do you think are the the reasons for that? Is it because because banks have grown in empathy towards their customers? Is that like, or what is the what is the reason that you think there is a uh, now this awakening to the need for more uh, technology solutions to include those that have otherwise been excluded for several decades? Well, so first of all, I don't believe it's an awakening in empathy from the banks. Uh, <laughs> I know, there's a little lead in there. <laughs> it's interesting. So when I started doing uh, financial inclusion, fintech investing, there were about uh, 2.5 billion people that were unbanked around the world. Like that was the stack. And then call it 1x that on top of underbanked. Um, and over the last decade, I think the last survey, the World Bank runs a thing called the Findex. And it was like one and a half billion. So basically like between half a billion and a billion people have gotten more access to financial services over the last call it decade or so. Um, what has changed? Uh, I don't believe it's the bank's empathy. I think what's changed are new business models and new technology. Hmm. Uh, and those being proven, which has brought in a lot more interest in the space. When I started investing in FinTech, it was a sideshow. Um, no mainstream funds had FinTech investors. Um, there were a couple little funds like ours at, at ON and, and a couple others that were specialists in the space. Today, the largest category of unicorns around the world are FinTech unicorns. If you would ask me a year ago in Africa, for instance, in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, there had been one unicorn cumulatively, tech, private tech unicorn cumulatively. This year, there are seven, six mm. new ones. All six are FinTechs. So wow. what has happened is fintech has really become uh, a power to include people, but also to build really, really big businesses. Um, New Bank's IPO, for instance, in, in Latin America has really catalyzed interest in 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 in, um, in in that market. And the reason it has is, you know, for a bank, um, it is super expensive to serve a customer that has no balance or a low balance and is using it very infrequently. And that's why, for instance, uh, overdraft fees have become such a thirty billion dollar industry in the U.S. But with tech, all of a sudden, you can serve a low-value customer, uh, low-value, quote-unquote, right, in the sense of, you know, having low balance or low usage or what have you, much, much, much more cheaply, and then do it for much, much more. Um, one of the biggest drivers in the uh, the number I quoted for you uh, was in China. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's where things on the back of WeChat and et cetera have, have also brought people up the, the bank curve. Um, and so I think it's unequivocally um, the, the rise in interest in fintech but essentially the rise of using technology in this regulated space to serve customers uh, well to the needs that were uh, heretofore uh, not not served before. And so what are some, so I'm assuming like the regulatory sandbox could be one, one tool, but what are some other things that the fintech community can do as it thinks about broadening opportunities for the financially excluded? Like what, how can we continue to, you know, ride that wave if you think about it and, and really see more, more people have access and agency as they enter into the economy? Yeah. So, so th three thoughts, I think one, definitely on the ecosystem enablement side. Uh, that's a big, that's a big opportunity. Um, the second is cross pollination of ideas. I think where I've seen the biggest success is there's one or two or three ideas every year that are really transformative, big businesses. Um, and those can be successfully scaled by different entrepreneurs or perhaps by the original business in different geos. Like Udon, for instance, in India, a couple of years ago was the fastest ever company to become a unicorn. What they do is they allow these small little mom and pop shop merchants in India 
to have access to uh, Amazon-like inventory plus financial services. And now there's a bunch of these companies around the world. So it's the best ideas are coming from anywhere and scaling anywhere. And it's getting getting that uh, inspiration um, and, and, and supporting those entrepreneurs with capital, with people, with all that stuff. And I think the third, you talked about the banks. I, and I actually think, you know, I, I think it's Silicon Valley. We often have a tendency to say the future is only with the tech companies. Um, the reality is, and in America, for instance, um, America has this incredible long tail of traditional financial services, credit unions, local banks, et cetera. I don't think these folks are going away. Um, they have really unique relationships with their customers. Um, they, they, they serve them well, et cetera. Um, but I think they do need tech to modernize their stack. And so I think that it's how do you actually bring uh, incumbents and technology players to work together uh, to better serve customers. And, and, and so I, I honestly think this will be a multifaceted solution with many players around the table. Yeah, and no, I think that's good. And and I think, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, that the banks aren't necessarily more empathetic, but as, as it did remind me of like the Cathay predictions for 2022, one of the things that you put in there that, that the future of tech is more empathetic. I'm curious, what, what did you mean by that? And what, what can we hope to see in 2022 and beyond? Because because I do think with with COVID and and just the politics of our time, uh, I don't think that's the first place most people would go. So I'm curious what you meant by the future of tech is more empathetic. Um, I think that what is happening right now, and that's part of the news, is automation, right? It's that mm. we're taking a set of medium complex tasks and automating them. Uh, with a bunch of, you know, UiPath, RPA, kind of robotic process automation. We're, we're doing that. The white collar, we've been doing it to a bunch of other things with robotics in general. Uh, I think that's kind of a train that's going to continue going. Um, uh, but I think that what it means is that we'll need um, an interface with customers and an interface with employees and things like that that is more empathetic. Think of all the time you go on a website and the automated chatbot goes. And you're like, oh God, right? Like, um, I think that what you want is like a better, more authentic relationship with customers. And I don't think a machine does that. I think a human and a machine can be, a human can be massively augmented with tech. But I think that like this human connection is important. Um, and I think that's true along the stack. And, and, um, and so I think that will be a big theme of how do brands, how do customers, how do uh, employers, uh, relate, connect with their community, uh, particularly in this age of, you know, we're so, you know, we're both doing this, uh, working from home in this, in this COVID era. Uh, I think human connection is, is going to be very important. Those that figure that out and figure it out authentically and well, um, I think we'll, we'll benefit from it. No, I think, I think that's, um, I think that's good because, you know, this whole future of work thing and automation and, it's good. I mean, on one hand, I hear everybody, it's inevitable. It's coming and, and we just need to figure out how we're going to uh, upskill workers and get them ready for this future economy. And I think that's good. I think the other question is, um, you know, at what cost? And I think I think your admonition to towards empathy is, is, a, is a helpful one because I think the ones that figure out customer connection, still that kind of human connection uh, where machines are then augmenting that versus replacing that, I think where I sit in Louisville, Kentucky with tons of manufacturing and, you know, generally an economy um, that's depressed and, and, and needs to be reimagined, it's how do we stay competitive? And then we also oftentimes 
don't talk about the human behind that decision. It's like, let's just be more efficient. So I think, I think that call to kind of empathy and, and human connection is, is real and, and, and really something that's needed right now, given, given COVID and its impacts over the last couple of years. So we also just need the conversation around that topic. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think having that conversation and, and saying like, let's, let's build better, efficient, more, you know, more efficient systems, because if that's the case and we're not at work as much and we're able to spend more time with our loved ones, that's a good thing. But if it's, if it's replacing that human connection versus augmenting it, then I think we need to have another conversation. <laughs> so yeah. no, totally. in your, in your, in your book, um, what I really kind of wanted to close out our time together was with around um, what you're seeing and what you call kind of like these frontier economies. Like, so you're reimagining this, this model that Silicon Valley has kind of put forward uh, the gospel of Silicon Valley, so to speak. Um, and you talk about these frontier economies, these frontier ecosystems. Uh, and I think it's really, really helpful. It's, this is how we got kicked off at a startup week wow. in Louisville. You and I did a discussion and I think it's super helpful because in my seat, everybody looks to Silicon Valley, or at least they used to. I think people are starting to question that model. And like, how do we get the next Facebook? How do we become the next Silicon Valley? And I think that's the wrong question. And I think that's what you're also addressing as well. So talk to us about the the false narrative of this Silicon Valley gospel. And it, you you live there. I mean, you sit, you do there, you work there. So it's not like the, you know, the the enemy, so to speak, but what is it that other communities should be thinking about and doing in these frontier ecosystems to build competitive, lasting, kind of, um, you know, beautiful communities that people want to be a part of and they don't have to leave their home to go to San Francisco? Yeah, and what, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll just frame it with why I wrote this book. And I was observing um, in my day job as an investor in startups outside Silicon Valley, but also teaching a class on, on entrepreneurship, on global entrepreneurship, there was no material about mm. best practices, about how to scale startups and ecosystems with less capital, with less depth of been there, trained uh, startup human capital, with more macroeconomic shocks, just honestly with an entirely different context. And I, I chose the word frontier because we often associate California with this Wild West, but today California is the establishment. This new Wild West of innovation is around the world. And I believe it's where most of the innovation is gonna happen in the future. Not because Silicon Valley will necessarily go down, but because everywhere else will rise. And let me put that into context. Today, 91 startup ecosystems around the world have created a billion dollar business, 91. Hmm. These aren't just big businesses, these are the biggest businesses. The biggest neobank in the world is in Brazil. It's Nubank. The biggest RPA, robotic process automation company, which we talked about a second ago, is from Romania. UiPath, the biggest e-commerce enabler, is from Canada. Shopify, the biggest ed tech is Indian. Baiju, and the biggest social uh, network, the biggest uh, uh, social commerce, et cetera, is in China. Um, and so that's how innovation is happening today. Um, and no one is telling the stories of these entrepreneurs. And so I decided I would. I interviewed 200 founders, the founders of the biggest startups around the world. And I think that taken together, their best practices offer us an alternative playbook to how to build startups. One that you say, it can be global from day one, instead of just looking at Silicon Valley or the US. You can build distributed teams, which by the way is now best practice with COVID, has been best practice yeah. for a long time outside Silicon Valley. You're gonna be creating, a, creating markets instead of disrupting them and all the things that go with the strategy. I mean, a bunch of other these, um, these approaches. And so my advice to ecosystem leaders and to founders and say, look, what's happening in Silicon Valley should be an inspiration. But actually, take a second and 
look at what your peers and ecosystems that look more like yours are doing and how they are succeeding because there will be more um, more relevant. And, and I think the analogy for me that resonates the most is the car industry. A hundred years ago, the innovation of the day was not software. It was automobiles. And the capital of innovation was Detroit, not Silicon Valley. Um, fast forward, what happened? Innovation globalized. Today, um, the capital for the most reliable cars is Japan. And uh, raw engineering might be in Germany. And the sexiest sports cars uh, might come from Italy. And the capital of electrification is arguably uh, with Tesla in Los Angeles or Shenzhen, right? And so innovation is globalized, but also it is specialized regionally and best practices moved elsewhere. And by the way, just-in-time manufacturing came from Japan is now best practice everywhere. Um, and so that's what's going to happen in the world of tech as well. And that's why uh, entrepreneurs, ecosystem builders, nonprofits, investors need to also learn from what's happening elsewhere. Yeah, and that's, that was actually going to be my next question. So because I think the other side of that is, okay, innovation's happening and, and decentralizing and, and the frontiers, but capital still seem is seemingly concentrated. Um, what are you seeing? Um, how, how is capital being reimagined? And how do we get some of these nascent players, these, the, you know, arguably foundations, if you think about it, in communities across the country that have endowments, how do we get them to think differently about participating in these frontier economies in ways that actually spur both economic and community development, that the things that they're after on their grant side could also be achieved through better jobs, better opportunities, better businesses? Um, because I think where I sit again in Louisville, that's that's been one of the biggest things is capital. Um, because the 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 Pillars of capital are still, from a venture perspective, Silicon Valley, uh, New York. And so if you're not present with those capital providers, it makes it a lot more difficult. So what can we do in these frontier economies? What should we be thinking about to build more innovative capital to support growth? Yeah, I, so I will say, one, the good news is, is that um, a byproduct of the pandemic, hopefully, will be a continuation of what's been playing out, is that investors are looking much more broadly than they were before, investing via Zoom, et cetera. So I think one is capital might still be concentrated, but it's also being more distributed slowly, but but that's happening. Um, but I actually think there's a couple of things we could do. One is local players, and there's a lot of capital across the country, um, should think about their investments differently. Um, and one of the, for instance, foundations, uh, I think that using the corpus to mission line investments, and I know this is something, Bryce, you're, you're thinking a lot about, um, I think is a really powerful way of aligning impact on the private investments with uh, with the mandate of the philanthropy, um, bringing corporates to the table to invest alongside VCs in their local economies. Because one of the things that's gonna happen is what tech will be regionalized uh, based on local strengths. And we'll see places like Minnesota continue to be really great in healthcare because it's a great ecosystem for that. Or Estonia around e-government because they've, they've done a nice job there on, on that. So bringing the different players to the table. And lastly, you know, something I think is interesting is I think um, there used to be the venture model, two and 20, uh, traditional preferred equity, um, or you could get venture debt or whatever. And I think we're going to see some blurring of the lines. We're already seeing it in venture, right? Where, you know, there used to be a traditional seed round and a traditional era. And like now those metrics are flattening out. It's it's less clear what exactly, um, there's more of a continuum, but also you yeah. know, the rise of alternative investment structures like revenue-based financing, um, which, uh, and there's now a bunch of big players that have emerged doing that, which is an alternative or a complement to 
venture capital and a rise of more venture debt options um, and, and other things that, that, are, that are popping up. And so I think, I think we're going to see, see more of that. Um, and the net beneficiary of it will be uh, tech outside of the Valley because, because of the ones that have had less, less historically. Um, and and yeah. so I'm terrifically excited about it. Yeah, I think that's that's a good word to kind of close out on because we, uh, you know, some of the work we've done here, we have a partnership with WeFunder, for example, and, you know, what we realized is people didn't even know what crowdfunding was, even though it was it's been approved since the Jobs Act of 2016, and so it's it's been possible to do it across the country. But what we did is we built more of an incentive. We built a small regional strategy where if you're oh. raising on a on a WeFunder campaign. Uh, will match uh, to try to incentivize more community participation. And so that that has helped. Um, but I think how do we take that and, and replicate it in other markets? How do we expand it? Uh, I think the Reg CF change was really, really interesting uh, to where now you could raise $5 million on a crowdfunded equity platform. Uh, and that was really, really neat to see like even Mercury, a fintech company out of the Bay Area, opening up five million of their round on a WeFunder because they wanted their customers to win with them. So I think, like you said, this this leveling of the playing field on, on venture, but also allowing community people to participate is is a really cool new new future, I think, uh, for it's communities big, across the country. It's a big deal, 100%. Um, yeah. so I'm, I'm excited to see more, a lot more of this uh, in, the, in, yeah. the, in the coming years. So what um, if if I could go out with one final question for you, give you the last word? Um, I like to sometimes ask like, what are you excited about, and and what gives you pause? Um, and pause meaning like it could be a regulatory issue that we've got to fix. It could be anything. Let's start with the negative and end with the positive. So as you think about 2022 and beyond, what what are you pressing into that you feel needs to be changed or addressed or or, or continue to press forward um, that we need to solve as as a, as a as a society, and then what are you excited about? What what are you really uh, jazzed about? Looking forward to. Um, I'm going to give you the, the one thing which will answer both sides of it, which is <laughs> okay. There you go. I, I think I think we're I think we're at any number two or three about the rise of tech everywhere, and I think that is terrific. I also a little worried uh, about uh, an influx of capital and not enough places for it to go, and the rise like the rise of valuations with valuation expectations of everything. Um, I think we're I think we're going to see way way more. Um, outcomes. I just don't want. Uh, I, I just want this to be a sustainable uh, ecosystem development around the world, not a bunch of one-hit wonders. And and I just want to make sure we're thinking very thoughtfully about how to um, build the flywheel in a bunch of these different ecosystems. And so it, it, it's two sides of it. But I, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm really excited. I think I think we have, uh, um, you know, not necessarily uh, uh, a smooth ride. The whole time, but I, I, I think the long-term trend is going to be in the right direction over the next uh, next few decades, and, and and I think that's a terrific moment to be to be doing this work and, and for us collectively to hopefully move the needle forward. If you haven't already, you will want to pick up Alex's book. We have a link to it in the show notes. Alex is a prolific writer, and you can follow along with him on Substack. A link is in our show notes. And finally, you can also follow him on Twitter at Alex underscore Lazaro. As always, stay up to date by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, drop us a review so others can find us as well. More Than Profit is a production of Access Ventures. Direction, design, and editing is done by Render, a public benefit innovation as a services corporation in Louisville, Kentucky. To learn more about their work, check out workwithrender.com. I'm Bryce Butler with Access Ventures. Thanks for listening.